Welcome back, everybody. It's episode six. Goodness me. I know I say this at the start of every episode. I feel surprised at the start of every episode, Tom, that we are back and we are coming at you again. I think it's just amazing that we we keep managing to do this, don't we? We're persistent, if nothing else. Exactly. We're not going away. Okay, so what have we been doing since our last podcast? And we've been on our travels, haven't we? We have both been on uh, entirely separate aeroplanes, and, and not because Cardiff Met requires us to travel separately, because we're too important to lose us both if the plane goes down, but because we've been sent to two entirely different parts of the world. Uh, you've been to Canada. I have. And how was that? It was uh, very refreshing. It was a fly, <laughs> literally a flying visit. Yep. Um, I was in and out very, very quickly. And I was there to try to advertise and hopefully recruit, if any of you are listening, uh, some of our Can Teach students. So our students, our international students who are applying for our PGCE programmes from Canada. And meanwhile, at exactly the same time, actually, I was on a plane going to Northern Ireland. So considerably less far away. Ooh, it's exciting. Slightly less exotic. Not that Canada's that exotic but I, I don't know I, well, that was the word that came to mind yeah Northern Ireland was very nice I've only been to Northern Ireland once before and I went to visit my opposite number in the University of Ulster um, Paul McQueen who runs the whole of PGC secondary actually over there everything post primary and is their music specialist and we were chatting about matters to do with uh, student recruitment and why people struggle to uh, come and become teachers and that kind of thing. I had a lovely look around the the north coast of Northern Ireland and a very nice lunch. So yeah, we had you, we had very um, different landscapes to admire, didn't we? I was in pretty much the epitome of metropolis whilst you were on the rugged kind of Jurassic coast, I, I hope was. it's Jurassic, of Northern Ireland. And now we're back in your office and uh, the weather's nice again. So I'm not going to be rude about your office this time. <laughs> you were most offended last time. <laughs> So um, we've been engaged as well over the last few weeks in something quite exciting that kind of dovetails with the new revolutionary curriculum and, and various aspects of the new curriculum that are being pioneered at the moment in Wales. And there is a pioneer group who are focusing on professional learning. It's quite interesting, actually. It's like it's like a, a relay race. So the pioneers of the curriculum have been working hard at developing this, this new curriculum for Wales. And they've now gotten to almost to a position where they're passing that baton, they're passing it over, everything they've worked on, to the professional learning pioneers to trial it in their schools. And while I suppose the curriculum is the kind of big headline thing that everyone thinks about, it is definitely true to say that if we don't get that training, professional development side of things right, the whole thing is probably going to be all for nothing. So those people have got a pretty awesome responsibility. So in that vein, we're going to have a little look today at research-informed practice. And we're going to look at someone who's very quickly turned into kind of the godfather of research-informed practice. In the and current... we have mentioned him, haven't we, before? We have, we have. So we're coming at you with, with some Hattie again. And we're going to look at some specific strategies that fall into his rank order of various different strategies, interventions that are deemed to have an effect on pupil learning. So I suppose before we dive into any of the strategies that he talks about in his various books and publications, um, we should just explain what John Hattie does. Uh, he's a, an Australian educationalist and he is an expert in meta-analysis. So the idea that you 
choose a strategy or any kind of factor that has an impact on pupils and you dig out all the studies of all sizes, all parts of the world, whenever they're from, and try and crunch them together to give you an even stronger idea of the effect. So that's meta-analysis. It's an analysis of other analyses, I suppose, of other studies. Wow, that was really well described, Tom. I'm, I'm impressed oh, with that. Thank you. And there's a lot of maths that goes on in this that makes it quite contentious, actually, as an approach to crunching many different studies together. Yeah, because what Hattie has to do is deal with studies that might be radically different in how they've collected their data. So you could maybe consider an example where... An intervention has been tested to see if it improves how long a pupil can concentrate on something for, for example. And they might have one study that says, on average, the amount of concentration has gone up by five minutes. And then you might have another study that also says, oh, the amount of concentration has gone up by five minutes. But then the lessons might have been completely different lengths, in which case five minutes in a half hour lesson is a very different kettle of fish to five minutes in a sort of massive double two hour session. And so he needs to have somewhere of standardising these measurements. And then over and above that, he might be looking at some really different factors. So things that he's looked at include giving homework, quality feedback, whether you have a long summer holiday, how involved your parents are in, in the education of the pupils. All of those things will be measured using entirely different units of measurement as well. And so he needs a way of standardising. And this is where we get into the fun world of effect size. Effect size, which also importantly links to a rank order of different strategies that have from high to low effect size. Yeah, and it can be really quite fun to look at this because John Hattie has his own website, visiblelearning.org. And one of the big set piece features of that website is the Hattie Ranking, which is an enormous bar chart of well over 200 of these factors where he's calculated the effect size. And because the effect size is a standardised measure, he's then able to put them in a rank order from top to bottom. And you can have endless hours of fun if you go on visiblelearning.org, looking at those things, spotting things that perhaps you always felt were really important that are languishing near the bottom or perhaps sacred things that your school is investing an enormous amount in and you discover that maybe it's not as effective and you can also have some surprises as well about what things are near the top. And I think what's interesting is that although there are many critiques of this rank order and there are lots of issues that are contentious that we'll touch upon in a moment, the advantages are that you don't have to start from nothing as a teacher when you're starting to think about what strategies could be used in your classroom that do have some really good roots in, in evidence and John Hattie's big motto in this is Know Thy Impact. He's published a number of books and the, the famous one is called Visible Learning and then there's another one called Visible Learning for Teachers. And you're right, he basically makes the point that if we as professionals are just rocking up into our classrooms and trying things out because we just fancy it, 
we're perhaps not being as efficient as we could be when there is an enormous amount of information out there about what's effective and what's not. Absolutely. And um, one of our lovely colleagues, I'm going to name drop her now, Julia Jenkins, has a really great analogy for this. She talks about sort of early teacher trainees scattergunning <laughs> activities when they're planning their lessons, you know, and, and, and very much kind of hoping for the best, scattergunning strategies and activities and going, oh, I really hope that they work. And what we're trying to say to you is that Hattie is a really good starting point for thinking about what you're going to use that is informed and, and rooted in research. And that he's not the only one who's done this. The Education Endowment Foundation, which I believe is part of the Sutton Trust, they've got a toolkit which kind of does a similar thing, puts things in rank orders, but then has also sort of other additional tools on there so you can see actually how much this strategy might cost to implement in your school how many extra months of progress these strategies are facilitating and also how many studies uh, have fed into the rank order and, and how many studies the strategy is built upon and if you're still curious about the whole effect size thing we've glossed over it a little bit and people do tend to do that I think probably an internet search is your friend there because it is a standard statistical device. Um, but I think for the purposes of our deep discussion today, as long as we understand that it's just a way of taking different measures of how much something's improved and finding a way of putting them on a level playing field so they can be ranked, I think that's okay. I think it is really important though also to bear in mind that as with all of these things, just because you've put a number on something, it doesn't make it automatically the truth. And while we said earlier that we need to be careful as teachers not to see ourselves as kind of crazy artistic figures just trying stuff out on a hunch, we don't want to go the other way as well, which I think some people do, which is, is to worship numbers and think that because it's got a number on it, we, we've got to believe it. There are criticisms of Hattie's ranking method. You can find them by searching online. And I think a lot of them are quite valid criticisms. And I think Hattie himself, uh, he actually commented on one of the blogs criticising him and, and, and said, no, that's absolutely fine. As long as we understand that as soon as you put things on a level playing field like that, we are going to lose a little bit of detail. Yeah, and a good example of this is homework. This was the exact contentious issue that was brought up in this blog that Tom has just mentioned and about how homework and the effect size of homework, when you look down into the detail, is very different for primary pupils to how effective it is in terms of progress in secondary contexts. Yeah, and I think probably we all see homework. It sits really low on the Hattie ranking, considering how much homework people give. And I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a danger as well that all of us who really hate the idea of lugging bags of homework home to Mark, that's an absolute gift. You see homework low down on the rank and you think, yay, happy days, don't need to give any more homework. But actually, the fine detail of it, and this is where, as a professional, we need to really drill into these things properly, is, as you say, it has a very different effect according to the age of the pupil. So, I mean, it's basically pretty pointless giving it out in primary, but there is a point to it in secondary, but only if you give the right sort of homework. Absolutely. So, as with all of these things, they are a tool, but they are to be approached in a professional way and don't take them as law. Look into them, get under the skin of them. And I guess that's a good segue into what I did myself in my own practice. So I thought 
I'm going to try out one of these high ranking techniques on the Hattie ranking list and I'm going to try it out with my student teachers just so that I can make sense of it for myself so that I can consider the the positives and the challenges associated with it and so that we can have a nice deep discussion about it Tom. So the technique is jigsaw technique. Now this comes in at an effect size of 1.20 and it's probably worth saying that anything above uh, 0.4 is deemed to be having a really good effect on our learners that goes beyond just, just the average. Just the average. Yeah. Yeah. Point 0.4 is considered a kind of average effect. So anything between point 0.2 and point 0.4 is kind of okay. Anything below point 0.2 is, to be honest, not worth dealing with very much. And certainly if you're up around 1.2, that's in education is considered a pretty enormous additional kind of boost to pupils' progress. Good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And to give you some perspective, this is seventh from the top on this list. So it's it's quite up there. And that was my main rationale for trying this out. So jigsaw technique then, just to give you a definition, I'm taking this definition verbatim from the jigsaw.org website. It says the jigsaw classroom is a cooperative learning technique that reduces racial conflict amongst school children, promotes better learning, improves student motivation and increases enjoyment of the learning experience. Now, it's a, you know, big claim. Sounds good. It does sound good. It's worth also mentioning that this is a research-based cooperative learning technique that was invented and developed in the early 1970s by somebody called Elliot Aronson at the University of Texas and the University of California. And you're probably asking yourself, well, what is cooperative learning? That might be a term that you've heard sort of bandied about, but you're, you're not entirely sure what that means. And I've got a bit of a definition for you there too. So, cooperative learning and um, we can probably think about cooperation first of all is working together to accomplish shared goals but what's important about co- cooperative learning situations is that it brings into focus the importance of the individual who is seeking outcomes that are beneficial to themselves but also working with others so they're also trying to be beneficial to all of the other group members and I that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind when we're thinking about jigsaw is that it's not just about the benefits of working in a group it's also how that group work is benefiting the individual and it's important isn't it with group work because we can always fall into that trap that the, the group kind of becomes a kind of entity in itself and we lose sight of the individuals within the group and that of course is when the individuals within the group if they choose to can kind of fly under the radar a little bit absolutely so i had to do some some research myself to have a think about how to implement this strategy first of all so from a practical perspective i had to understand how this technique works and jigsaw.org gives you a step by step guide that I'm going to try and summarise quite quickly for you. So it takes quite a bit of organising in the planning stage. The first step is to pre-plan diverse, and that's a really important point, diverse groups. So at that stage, you need to be sort of taking in consideration the learning needs of your pupils. You're starting to think about differentiation. You're thinking about attainment. So all of the things that feed into 
how you might construct a diverse group of learners. Your second step, you need to appoint a group leader of that jigsaw group. I'm going to call that group the jigsaw group. So you appoint that group leader and what they advise on this website is that initially that group leader should be the most mature person in that group. So maybe someone who can model positive learning dispositions, who's quite driven. So you've got those groups figured out. You're then going to think about the topic that you're trying to teach. And you're going to try and break that topic down into five or six segments. So for example, let's say you're about to introduce pupils to a new novel in English and you want them to know and understand the context of it before you start to read it. You might divide that broad topic of context into five areas. So you might get one group to to look at or uh, one segment might be the social context. Another segment might be the historical context, the political context, the economic context, the cultural context. So you see how I've broken down that broad topic of the context of the novel down into five bite-sized chunks. So you've done all of that, you've thought about the content, you've thought about the groupings. The next step is to assign each pupil in the group, so in your jigsaw group, to one segment. So in the five groups, each pupil in the groups are dealing with one of the segments that you've decided on. So you've got a group made up of experts in in each little bit, but nobody knows everything. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's, That's absolutely right. So... Then, once you've given them access to the content associated with their segment, so I might be in a group with Tom and he might have a segment on social context and I might have a segment on historical context, I'm going to be given resources by the teacher on my area of focus and you're going to give them time then as the teacher to read through their content individually. They don't need to memorise it, but you might want to get them to read through it a couple of times. And then they're going to move groups. So they're going to leave their jigsaw group and they're going to move into expert groups. So it's quite intuitive there, Tom, that you you mentioned about them becoming experts in their particular segment. So you're going to then put them into expert groups made up of pupils who are all dealing with the same segment. So you're going to have all the pupils looking at social context in together, all the pupils looking at historical context in together. Those temporary expert groups, it's their job then to discuss the content, to discuss the main points of their segment, to maybe rehearse how they're going to present back to their jigsaw group everything that they've learned. So this is a moment where they're really trying to get under the skin of the content that they've been given, to memorise it, to also understand it. That's a nice safety net for the experts, isn't it? Because you might be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm not sure I quite get this. And I'm the only person in my group that has this information that that could be quite pressurised. So it's nice that they get that opportunity to sort themselves out. Yes, you're absolutely right. What's difficult potentially for the teacher there, though, is that you're considering the makeup of your jigsaw group so that it's diverse. But you've also then got to think about where the pupils are going to go to and who they're going to be working with when they're working in their expert groups. So this is where I'm kind of, I'll I'll summarise this a bit more later on, but one of the sort of early challenges is thinking about those group makeups and how how you're organising those groups. Okay, so they've gone into their expert groups. They've spent a bit of time getting under the skin of the content associated with their segment. Then they're going to reassemble in their jigsaw groups 
And the leader who you appointed earlier on, that mature pupil, that that pupil who's got really good learning dispositions, they're going to coordinate each individual in their group presenting on their topic or on their segment to one another. And what they've also got to do is to encourage other pupils, other peers in their group to ask questions so that the content can be clarified. And I think that's quite interesting. It's an important point there. And, and how the teacher sort of initiates that and, and ensures that that happens is is another really important consideration when you're kind of planning this activity. Yeah, that sounds hard to make that happen, doesn't it? That's a high level skill that that leader needs to have. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting because the founders of this technique have actually thought about that because what they say is step nine for the teacher is for them to be rotating the groups, observing, but also intervening where necessary. And what they suggest is kind of side coaching the leader if they need it. So perhaps whispering a few ideas, thoughts, questions into the leader's ear. So and I thought that was interesting because they they do specify that it should be whispered. And and I I think that's that's interesting food for thought about the role of the teacher in this in this activity, in this technique, you know, because they don't want to dominate. They really do want the groups to be working in a cooperative and an autonomous way. It's nice as well, isn't it, that this this leader person who's who's, you know, clearly going to be quite an able person in the group is getting a bit of help there. Because I think there's there's always a temptation to give these more able people a teacher like role. You know, there's always this thing about, oh, yes, you can go and help all the other pupils and all of that. But we often don't think about what skills they're going to need in order to be able to do that. We're just going to cut them loose. And and that's nice that they've thought about that. I totally totally agree with that and it's and it, that links with something that Hattie says a little bit later on I'm going to touch on that in a few minutes time so the final step you've done all of that they've engaged in the jigsaw technique and the final step is to quiz all of the pupils in the class on the content at the end of the lesson so then you are not only quizzing them on the area that they became an expert in but you're also quizzing them on the areas that they learned from others. So you're also kind of looking there at the quality of delivery from others in their jigsaw group. And I think that's an important final step. And that could be quite a low stakes test that you're using there. And you could make it slightly competitive if you wanted to, to see which jigsaw group actually learned the most and got the most right at the end. I don't know whether, you know, that's a bit of a contentious point, but you could. And that could be another motivator. So that's essentially how it works. And I think what I wanted to do was to repackage it a little bit so that it worked in the context of what I was then delivering with my student teachers. So I used it in order to have a look at behaviour for learning with my PGC drama cohort. And the reason why I chose this technique for this session was because I already knew that they had quite a lot of pre-existing knowledge and experience on behaviour for learning techniques because they'd already been out in schools. So I felt that quite a lot of direct teaching and leading from the front from me was not necessarily going to be the best strategy for my student teachers. What I wanted them to do was to do something cooperative, some cooperative learning so that they could really benefit from sharing their experiences with one another. So what I did was I adapted the technique so that they were given 
different segments associated with behaviour for learning. But I tried to repackage it a little bit so that they, they weren't just learning content that was given to them. They were also encouraged to do a little bit of extra research and reading when they were in their research groups. They were also given a a case study in relation to behaviour for learning so that they were asked to apply some of the techniques that they were learning about in relation to behaviour for learning to a case study. So what I'd done is I thought about Bloom's taxonomy there. I thought about activities that I could add when they were in their expert group so that they could take the knowledge a little bit deeper. There's a lot going on there. And I guess you were probably pointing at the use of the jigsaw technique as well. So they were sitting at all sorts of different levels. During yes. That session. Yes. And I think the important thing to move on to now was that, you know, I, I did it with my student teachers without going too deep into just describing everything. I think what's probably going to be best for our listeners is for us to talk about the positives and considerations or challenges that went along with this strategy. So what I saw to be the positives was that it allowed opportunities for my students to work both independently and within a group. And what I mean by that is that actually every individual in the group was accountable because there was only ever going to be one person coming back to their jigsaw group to give information on their topic. So if they didn't engage, if they didn't know and understand their segment of the lesson, then they would potentially be letting their jigsaw group down because their jigsaw group wouldn't know that bit, that segment so well. You know, I read a thing the other day and you know when you have a light bulb moment, you've been in the classroom for years and years and years and then you just see something in black and white and think, oh, I I never actually got my head around that and it was that simple thing that if you do group work and you haven't made a system for every single person in the group to have some sense of accountability then you're potentially going to have a big problem and that really does solve that problem doesn't it of, of making sure that nobody can afford to slack off. I think you're right and do you know what Hattie actually talks about this in his book Visible Learning for Teachers 2012. He talks about jigsaw method in the context of differentiation and differential instruction. And he makes a really interesting point that mixed or what we call heterogeneous groups um, and group work, although it's potentially effective when it's really carefully crafted by the teacher and it's based on different factors of need, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to learn when they're in a group. So if you just kind of plonk them in a group and expect them to learn and expect them to learn from one another, it's, it's not necessarily going to happen. So this makes the activity and the resources and the teacher's role when you're doing jigsaw really, really important. And indeed, not just jigsaw, any group work. So exactly as you say, Tom, you know, you've you've got to make sure that they have no reason to coast because they're going to have to go back to the rest of their group and tell them everything that they know. What I thought of it from a teacher perspective as well was that it freed me up in the session to make some really meaningful interventions where needed because I'd done a lot of the hard work in planning and and getting all of my resources in place before the lesson. It pretty much was a very pupil-led lesson. That didn't mean that it was devoid of really important kind of knowledge, facts and information but actually a lot of the learning was being driven by them, which meant that I, the teacher, could then make some very meaningful interjections and interventions and to clarify any misconceptions 
as things were going on. It's always great to have that role, isn't it? I always much prefer doing that to being stuck at the front, spouting on about things. But I guess you're right. You had to do some serious homework first. Yeah, I absolutely did. So considerations and challenges then. It's time consuming in terms of preparation. What I had to do was put together a a really useful resource for the expert groups that they had all of the information, questions and bits and bobs that they needed to engage with the content that they were trying to learn. I also set up a Padlet platform, which is kind of like a social platform that you can use in education where you can all comment on the same platform, a bit like Pinterest. And what I got them to do was to summarise their content on Padlet so that they could go back to their jigsaw group and have collectively written notes. So this was very, very time consuming for me as the teacher. Yeah, let's all just take a moment and and appreciate the fact that I happen to know you were here at, was it six o'clock on a Friday night? You were only finally thwarted and made to go home when the photocopiers broke down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I I guess I've got to say, I mean, we talk a lot about workloads and we, we talk a lot about well-being, but not a lot gets said as well to kind of balance that out about being quite excited and driven to want to work a little bit later on some things because you've got a hunch that they're really going to work. So although I felt tired, I know it was time consuming. I've got that resource now. I'm probably going to laminate it because I feel like it worked. But yeah, it's time consuming. So allow yourself enough time to prepare for it. I think I've already emphasised this, but it's really important to emphasise engagement from all pupils during the expert group time. So it's very important to emphasise to your pupils that when they go off to be experts, that they all have to engage in making sense of that content together so that nobody does coast. And you need to consider careful guidance about how pupils conduct themselves and what activities they complete in order to memorise and understand the content. So I don't think it will be enough to just go, right, here you go, there's all the content, now go off and and learn it. You might have to give them some tips and some additional information and, and strategies to make sure that they do understand the content and they have learnt it properly and that they they can quite successfully then relay that to their jigsaw group. Yeah, you could really imagine somebody jumping into this perhaps with both feet and and it not going very well because they haven't spent the time setting up that ethos in their classroom and also giving pupils just those skills and tools over over maybe a longer period of time because to just expect them to jump in and do this I think would be unrealistic without any guidance. Yes, I agree with all of that. So I can see why this has a high ranking effect size because I think if done well and if all of those sort of challenges and and caveats that I've explained and considerations are, are put in place then pupils could be learning really well from one another they are utilizing the information they are um, applying the knowledge by teaching it to one another it's they're being questioned on it so it's very active isn't it it is very active so perhaps it might just be another way of thinking about introducing a topic or if you would rather give them a lot of the facts and knowledge up front first, it could be a nice way of giving them something active and learner-centred to do at the end of a unit of work to be the sort of icing on the cake of, of a topic that you've been looking at. So you may have already studied the novel and you might then be getting them to look at and discuss 
different chapters that they've already encountered. I know it's very English centric, but I'm sure that there are multiple subjects that could operate in a jigsaw technique with the content that they have of their curriculum. Lovely. So that's a really in-depth look at one of the high ranking things. And I mean, we could go on for ages looking at a lot of these things. There are absolutely loads of them. And as we said before, some of them are more nuanced than perhaps their single bar on the chart might suggest. But I guess the first question anybody asks when they hear about the Hattie ranking is, well, what's at the top? Ah, that's a very, very good point. And we did a session with our student teachers on this where we did a big reveal of what's at the top. It was in an envelope, wasn't it? (laughs) It was in an envelope. And at the top is collective teacher efficacy, collective teacher efficacy. And this scores a whopping 1.57 at the top of that rank order. I think it's worth saying it's quite a lot higher than the second one, actually, isn't it? It sits out the front by quite some way. Oh, does it? Do you know by how much? No. I'm putting you on the spot now. Oh, well, okay. Homework for you listeners to, to have a look at that. But what this actually means is the collective belief of the staff of the school slash department in their ability to positively affect students. Collective teacher efficacy has been found to be positively correlated with student achievement and is also said to be vital for the health of the school. So basically, if teachers believe they can make a difference collectively, then it's likely that they will. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you don't have to go very far through the news stories about schools and what it's like to be a teacher to find a lot of people saying that that perhaps isn't the case in one or two schools and that actually the the reason that the managers are paid slightly more than the rest of us is that that they need to be trying to create that ethos inside their schools and it's also interesting to think that we try and create that amongst our pupils but how well is it created amongst us as teachers there's a controversial question I think it is controversial and and I think maybe on the surface it sounds quite fluffy and it I think it probably sounds quite progressive if we're going to uh, (laughs) tread into the trads versus progs debate yeah but I think what's um, some really interesting recent research well a report actually that came out recently by the OECD was about schools as learning organizations and that report talks about Wales specifically and some best practice in schools where schools are self-developing because staff are engaging in research they're having really meaningful conversations and making time in their busy schedules to talk to one another about teaching and learning without fear of being scrutinised. You know, I'm I'm paraphrasing what is a whopping 268-page report, but I think this resonates quite nicely with what Hattie's talking about here and how, as a collective, if we all have the opportunity to work together and to have meaningful conversations about what works, then maybe it will have benefits for our pupils. Reminds me of episode one, when we talked about the keynote from the professor. He said, you can only go so far with top-down. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, yeah, I think you're right. And it kind of resonates with Jigsaw, doesn't it? Because we're all kind of working individually as experts at the moment. But we then need to go off into different groups and, and work outside of our subject areas and be talking about pedagogy and be talking about what works. Yeah, and be encouraged to do that by the ethos that's set from the top. Probably harder to do than it is to write about, but it's it's something to aspire to. 
Okay, so that was our deep discussion about the mighty Hattie. Now we're on to our well-being slot. And Tom, you've got something interesting to yeah. talk to us about. <laughs> yeah, this is an odd one. Um, <laughs> but we like to range far and wide with our source material for the podcast. And I mean, I've written in the notes for this. God knows how I came across this because I don't even remember how I found this. You know how it is when you're just reading random things on the internet. But today's well-being tip comes from the world of outdoors survival and anyone who's met me will will know that I'm not much of an outdoorsy kind of person but I rather like this article that I randomly found and I wanted to share it as an idea. Do you fancy yourself as the next Bear Grylls Tom? Absolutely without a shadow of a doubt no. (laughs) (laughs) I've got I'm picturing you like trying to pin a a bush pig down to the ground and uh... PGC we should put them out in the in the forest and they can only eat what they can kill. I'm a vegetarian. This is not resonating well with me. (laughs) You're eating leaves. But anyway, this this idea, I, I liked the way that it can be applied to how we have to make decisions uh, when we're in all walks of life, but particularly in the world of education, where a lot of quite difficult decisions tend to come our way in quite a short space of time. So the gist of the article I read, it was from a guy who runs outdoor survival classes or courses or something like that. And he was trying to think about good pieces of advice he could give. And of course, I I guess, and I say this as someone who's not really into this stuff, there's probably a whole bunch of people who are really interested in what kind of stuff you should carry around with you to make sure you can survive when you're in a crisis situation. You can tell I'm out of my comfort zone here when I'm saying this, but I, I just sort of imagine there's probably internet discussions out there on, you know, what's the best kind of axe for chopping down a tree and making a fire or something like that. And this guy writing the article decided to go back to first principles with this and come up with a single thing that he would suggest that people should carry around with them so that they could survive in some sort of terrible situation. Maybe, you know, your plane to Canada has come down in a thickly wooded area. (laughs) (laughs) And you only have the things on your person to help you survive until the vice chancellor comes in a helicopter to collect you. And he decided in the end that he was going to suggest to his pupils that the only thing they would need in order to give them the best chance of survival that they should carry about their person at all times would be all the things they need in order to make a cup of tea. What? A cup of tea, yeah. And, no. And there, well, there were, there were various rationales for this, some of which were probably more applicable to the world of education than not. I mean, one of them was that, you know, you'd have the ability to make some form of fire about your person then, which I guess is kind of useful if you're trying to survive. And that's less useful to us unless we, we want to get sacked. Um, but he did also make the point that when people go out and get stuck in a terrible situation, like they get lost on a mountain or something like that, Half of the time, the reason that they end up dead is because in the heat of the kind of initial crisis moment, they thought, I have to do something. I must do something now in order to get me out of this situation. And without really thinking it through, they would just do something. And it would usually be the wrong thing. They'd set off, you know, in the wrong direction or they'd go out into the bad weather when really they should have stayed where they were or something like that. So the idea behind it was that, yes, you'd make some fire. Yes, you'd get a hot drink inside you and maybe a bit of a sugar boost if you take sugar in your tea. But the main reason is it would just stop you doing anything else for 15 or 20 minutes. (laughs) Stop you doing anything rash. Yeah, stop you doing anything stupid. And 
you would take some comfort in doing a familiar activity. And certainly in my case, making a cup of tea is a very familiar activity because I do it quite a lot of the time. And his idea was that in the time it takes this person who's kind of panicking a little bit to get all their stuff out and make their cup of tea, uh, they would maybe have a chance to reflect and think and end up perhaps making a more considered first decision than they would have done if they just struck off into the forest, into the weather or whatever on their own. So this really resonated with me because I'm sure we've all been in that position professionally where something's going on and you feel you have to respond to it immediately with some kind of action or probably in the worst case scenario, some kind of email. It's never good. Mm. And uh, the idea of just not doing anything initially I thought was a really good one and and just sitting down and maybe even having a real cup of tea or maybe just not doing anything is my well-being tip for this week so next time you're in what you think is a crisis situation which probably isn't going to be life or death if you're a teacher just stop and do nothing and drink some tea before you do anything silly I think that's an excellent tip Tom and uh, and all I have to add to that is that if you see someone else who's looking slightly distressed maybe they've just walked out of a lesson where they've been observed or any lesson where they look like they've maybe had a bit of a crisis then maybe you might want to recommend going for a survival cuppa. Yeah it's passed into our shared language hasn't it we now talk about having a survival cuppa. Yes absolutely so many more survival cuppas in the future I'm sure. So there we go. Um, let's move on to our shout out section. So time to celebrate somebody out there doing something amazing. Who have we got for us uh, this time, Emma? Well, actually, this time, Tom, I'm going to be shouting out to multiple people. Teach First Cymru is a programme that I have the privilege of being tutor for English on. And they have a slightly different route into teaching than us on the PGCE in that they have a heavier timetable and they're teaching pretty much straight away. They're teaching their own classes. And that means that all of my Teach First participants who I look after and beyond in our current cohort, we've got two cohorts on the go at the moment, actually, the newbies, the new cohort, they've been teaching for a whole half term already. And I have had the privilege of going out to observe some of them. I'm going to be doing some more after half term. But I wanted to give them a shout out because they have really met the challenges of teaching head on. They've totally risen to the idea of research-informed practice and they are making great waves with their pupils. And I can give some really good examples of this. Two of my English participants I went to observe and what struck me as being really positive aspects of both of their lessons actually was how they were learning objective driven lessons so they're planning they'd really thought about crystallizing that learning objective and all of their activities were emanating from those learning objectives that they were really challenging learning objectives and then all of those activities were really kind of scaffolded and, and really carefully thought about so that they helped the pupils meet those learning objectives. So there's a, a, a bigger shout out to the whole Teach First Cymru cohort and indeed my lovely PDL participant development lead colleagues who work incredibly hard and indeed their school mentors, everyone who's working with the Teach, Teach First Cymru lot who work really hard and who've had a really great first half term. So well done to you all, keep going. 
Well done, Teach First. They do tend to place them in schools with quite uh, socio-economically deprived areas, don't they? So they're often quite tough environments to work in. Absolutely. But they absolutely are, again, meeting those challenges with great vigour and creativity and positivity. So I, I salute you all. Oh, well done, Teach First. And apparently some of them listen to the podcast as well. Oh, yeah. So hello. Hello. <laughs> now, Tom, you have got something to try this week. And I'm quite excited about this because it really resonates with group work. And we've been talking about that today when we've been looking at cooperative learning. So do you want to talk to us about Belbin and his team roles? Yeah. So this is related to what we were saying earlier, this idea that we need to think really carefully about how we construct our groups for group work. And the world of management is full of exciting and fun things, isn't it? But this one is one that's found its way. It certainly found its way into my school as something to consider. It's not the only one. It's just the particular one that I know of. And it's simply a way of defining those different kind of people that you have in any working group. So Belbin team roles is one of those questionnaire style things where you take a test you know it's a bit like that Myers-Briggs thing or something like that which yes. it kind of tells you about yourself and we all know from working in groups in work and in school that there are very very different kinds of people um, who work together in a group and what this Belbin system tries to do is to define those different kinds of people with the eventual aim I suppose that you can get a team together that is a good balance of personalities, that you haven't got too many of the same kind of people, that you haven't got any big holes in your team. Now, it's worth mentioning from the off that he defines nine different team roles, but he doesn't think that every team should actually have nine people in it. In fact, I think he thinks the optimum size for a team is about four. But he makes the point that most people will kind of cross between different roles. You're not just one particular kind of person. You can do different roles within a team. So I looked into this and I have actually had a little go at using some of this in school. You have to be a little bit careful using the Belbin system because it is all massively copyrighted. So you're not supposed to just kind of pinch it and use it. But there are freely available resources on a website for Belbin team roles. And that includes definitions of the different roles. Now, we don't want to go through all nine of those here on the podcast but they're all the kind of usual suspects. You've got your kind of leader figure, you know, your person who will G things up and keep things going and will drive people on and all of that. You've got your kind of people who are full of creative ideas, but perhaps are not necessarily the most practical. You've got the people who want to just get given a job and want to go away by themselves and finish it. You've got all these kinds of people. You get the ones that come up with great things and bring great things and then sort of lose interest really quickly. I mean, I don't know, Emma, I, I looked at these and I, I know which ones apply to me. There's specialist, uh, you know, single-minded, self-starting, you know, you really interested in quite a narrow range of things and skills but maybe you dwell a bit too much on the technicalities I'm also probably an implementer someone who just gets the idea and turns it into an action I just like getting stuff done yeah I've got to say I, I a couple of them resonate with me there's one complete a finisher painstaking conscientious anxious <laughs> searches out errors polishes and perfects I, I must say I, I am very guilty of procrastinating via Perfecting. I think we should add the sentence needs a survival cupper to that one. Yes. <laughs> What's interesting, though, Tom, is I don't know whether you can talk a little bit about the allowable weaknesses, which I thought was an interesting add, add, 
added here. Yeah, it's this idea that that there's no perfect member of a team. And I must say, I don't know whether this is just me, but there sometimes there are certain roles within a team that that seem to get fated more as being a really good thing. I've always felt this there's the cult of the ideas person, you know, the person that brings all the wacky ideas to the table and that maybe those people that just kind of want to get things done, maybe a bit like me, don't get that sort of slightly cult status to the same extent. So it's nice that for each one there is a balancing weakness. And yeah, it calls it an allowable weakness. It's fine that if you're really strong in one area, you're perhaps not going to be so good in others. So the creative person, they call them a plant. Uh, I don't think in in the sense of, of having leaves or anything like that. But they do point out that while they're creative, imaginative, free thinking, um, they can generate ideas that they might ignore incidentals practicalities, that kind of thing, they might not always communicate those ideas particularly effectively. Similarly, that person who gets things done, it says they might be a bit inflexible. They might be a bit slow to change course when new possibilities come along. So the idea that Belbin's got here really is that you need to try and balance these things out, that if you have got people in there who've got strengths, they're going to have allowable weaknesses and that there'll be other roles that will kind of cover that and as long as you cover it within your group then you're more likely to be okay and apparently part of this was was disproving the idea that a team full of really really bright people is necessarily going to do particularly well and he found that you know you could have a team of really really bright people but if it was really unbalanced it would be completely disastrous and I had a little go at this back when I was in school I had a little go with my classes at trying to work out what kinds of people I had in my classes. And it was really interesting because they came to me in their English sets, which, you know, I think was mainly for the convenience of the school rather than for any good educational reason. And I always used to find that my very top sets used to struggle with a lot of group work dynamics and things like that. So again, even though they were all quite bright people, they weren't always the best at creative outcomes in groups. And when I kind of looked into it a little bit more closely, I discovered that an awful lot of them fell into those personality types that you might broadly describe as leaders. There were an awful lot of leaders in my top set classes, but they were not that good at the sort of soft skills, working with other people kind of roles. And that was why actually I would often be surprisingly disappointed at their outcomes. That's really interesting, Tom. And and what struck me about this, actually, in relation to group work and how we as teachers plan and differentiate our groups or, or plan the makeup of our groups so we can differentiate is that we might simply look at test scores and aptitude as a measure for how we group pupils together when actually we might be missing a trick if we don't consider things like their team roles, their interpersonal skills, their competencies, their dispositions, because as Tom said, you know, it might not be beneficial to simply think about this in terms of aptitude and and academic ability. I suppose it comes full circle to what we were saying at the top of the episode, really, that there's a lot of things in what we do that we just kind of do on gut feeling. And that's great. And that's fine. But there are resources out there like Hattie, like these team roles. They're not the answer to absolutely everything, but they can provide you with a starting point and they can provide you with a little bit of something more concrete to base those decisions on. So as professionals, as research informed professionals, we should probably use them. Absolutely. I know I will be. 
Well, there we go. We've got to the end of another one, another episode finished, and I hope you found something useful there. Uh, lots of things to help you if you're trying to become a research-informed member of the teaching profession, or maybe if you just like an excuse to go make a cup of tea. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. If you want to find out more about how to know thy impact, John Hattie's website and books are called Visible Learning. The Belbin Team Roles information is available at belbin.com. There's plenty more about Jigsaw Technique at jigsaw.org. And a survival cuppa is available in your nearest staff room. We're off to the forest school to hone our vegetarian survival techniques. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. Enjoy teaching.